Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, rising concerns over the spreading coronavirus. But do we have to raid Costco of toilet paper? What is the latest with the wet suetin situation and pipelines moving forward? Can we expect more protests and blockades? And Super Tuesday is here. What do we get for that? We'll break it down. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. People are um, making their own hand sanitizer. Uh, Let's bring in Megan Coley, national online journalist, smart living and entertainment, and is with us now. Megan, people are actually trying to make their uh, their own hand sanitizer. They are. So there are some uh, DIY sort of recipes floating around on the the Internet right now, and they typically include ingredients like rubbing alcohol, um, essential oils, some of them, uh, aloe vera to give it that consistency. But, yeah, people are definitely trying this at home. All of a sudden, they've turned into Breaking Bad. They're all their own chemists. Uh, (laughs) Is this needed? Why don't they just go buy a bar of soap? Uh, that is exactly what public health officials told me. Um, so, you know, the World Health or- Organization does have an official recommendation for how to create your own hand sanitizer, but it is intended more for populations around the world that don't have immediate access to medical grade hand sanitizer or even clean water and soap. Um, so, you know, in Canada, generally speaking, um, if you have access to hand washing with soap and water, then that is your best line of defense against uh, spreading or catching COVID-19. How do you explain the sort of hysteria that this has created, whether it's making your own hand sanitizer or going to Costco and buying out every bottle that they have? Yeah, I think it's a perfectly natural human response to um, a, 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 a risk on your life, right? Um, and public health officials do recognize that. It is normal to feel scared and to want to arm yourself with the best line of defense. Um, but A, the individual risk of catching coronavirus right now in Canada is still very low relative to the rest of the world. Um, and B, it, the best way to prevent the spread of it is to just practice that good hygiene that, frankly, you should be practicing now and throughout the year and throughout your life. So washing your hands after you use the bathroom, um, washing your hands after you cough or sneeze, trying to keep those types of things contained in your sleeve so you're not spreading it to other people, and using hand sanitizer in between to hold you over. So let me run run this by you and tell me what you think, because someone someone threw this to me last night, Megan. So there's a run on toilet paper, on water bottles on hand sanitizer but there's no one lining up for a flu shot now i understand the current flu shot is not applicable does not contain something for the coronavirus but there's more chance of you catching the flu and becoming ill by that than there is the coronavirus and the influenza uh, uh, that the flu shot helps to guard against is just as dangerous as the coronavirus So how come we're zeroing in on Costco, but we're not zeroing in on flu shot lines? 
Well, this is a great question that a lot of, uh, you know, in my reporting, I've come across a lot of experts who bring this up right away. They say, why the immediate panic over this coronavirus where the risk is quite low that you'll catch it, but nobody really pays attention to the flu. So I do think it's important to reiterate that the flu shot is a very effective way to prevent the spread of influenza. Um, and, you know, thousands of people die in Canada every year from the flu uh, without it, having the vaccine. And a lot of people in Canada can't actually get the vaccine because they're immunocompromised, they're too young or they're too old, or they are undergoing chemo or similar treatments. So, you know, it's really important that we put things into perspective here and try to keep um, a, a level head about the actual risk of coronavirus. And instead of running to your local Costco and clearing them out of hand sanitizer, it might be a better idea just to reevaluate your, your good hygiene skills. You know, we're talking a lot about what it means to properly wash your hands and that would entail 20 seconds of warm water and thorough soap. Um, and, uh, and yeah, really uh, think about the next, you know, flu season, how you want to contribute to the overall health of Canadians. I think getting your flu shot continues to be the best line of defense. So how effective are hand sanitizers? When should they be used? So hand sanitizer is a great way to hold yourself over until you can get to the bathroom. The example I've been giving a lot today is, you know, let's say you're um, commuting to work on public transit and you're touching that pole on the bus that everybody else is touching. This is a, a high risk area. There could be there could very well be live germs on that pole. Um, but then you get to work and you have got to dive right in head first and you got to run to meetings. This would be a great time for you to grab a pump of hand sanitizer and, um, you know, make sure that you are killing off those germs before you start touching things like your keyboard and your phone, etc. Um, but, you know, after a meeting, you have time to stop by the bathroom. Hand washing would be a great uh, addition to that. And hand washing remains the most effective way to prevent the spread. Uh, I, I, I'm guessing that the most contaminated thing in any office place or whatever is, is the, the top button on the hand sanitizer bottle. No? That's interesting. I, I haven't had that question today yet. Um, but, I, I would look uh, into that one, Megan, because has anybody checked the top of that hand sanitizer bottle to see how dirty that is? That's what I'm thinking. It's, it's, it's an interesting question. I hope, though, that if you're touching the bottle of hand sanitizer, it's to get some of your own so that you can disinfect. <laughs> yes, but after you, you, you know, you're pumping it with a dirty hand, then you're cleaning your hands, you're walking, and, you're walking away, you're not going over and cleaning the top of the bottle. Well, this is an, you raise an interesting point about dirty hands, too. So the reason that hand sanitizer could be less effective when it comes to something like COVID-19 is because you may have dirt or some other physical barrier on your hand mm. preventing the hand sanitizer from doing what it's supposed to be doing. Um, and that's where hand washing is really key. So it'll get rid of all those external things that could be blocking um, uh, your hands from being clean and then also getting rid of those germs. Do you think we're helping here, Megan, or are we just creating more hysteria? <laughs> you know, I've been asking myself this all day, um, but I do think we have a responsibility to help people understand the actual relative risk that they're in. Yeah. Um, but I, I, it, what's comforting for me as somebody who does tend to err on the side of anxiety about health issues um, is that 
uh, every public health official I've spoken to and every expert in the field has said the exact same thing, which is that if you just keep practicing good hygiene, washing your hands all the time, um, the individual risk is still very low. And the panic right now that we're seeing in stores and on store shelves is much, much higher, on, honestly, relatively overblown for right now in Canada. So if we can all just remember that and remain calm, I think we'll, we'll be okay. Wise words from Megan Coley, National Online Journalist, Smart Living and Entertainment with Global. Megan, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. The latest in uh, the wet Wet'suwet'en situation. Of course, we know of the deal that, well, we don't really know of the deal that was arranged on the weekend. We hear it's a good one, but that's about all we know. Uh, the elected band council chiefs are wondering what their, or government is wondering what their involvement is in all of this. And what does it mean to the pipeline situation? I want to talk about that and uh, the Ring of Fire stuff that we were just talking about. And joining us to talk more is Ian Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He is with us now. Ian, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. First, let's talk about the Ring of Fire. This doesn't seem to be getting much press. Uh, what, talk about this region, why it is so important to Ontario. Well, it's in the middle of nowhere in northern Ontario. Um, when I say the middle of nowhere, it's in northern Ontario, and I don't mean near Thunder Bay or, or, or uh, Lake Superior. It's north of that, uh, going up towards Hudson's Bay. It's a vast area. It's uh, rich in resources. Um, the problem, of course, is that it's very inaccessible. There's no infrastructure because there's almost no people there. There are a few um, um, indigenous reserves uh, in the area. Um, and uh, and so the successive governments have talked about uh, developing it just because there is there is such an enormous amount of resources there. Um, I haven't looked at the specific ones, but I mean, I just know generically. I think there's probably, you know, copper, silver, gold, molybdenum, that sort of thing. And, of course, it'll give employment. It's the same argument um, for, you know, oil and gas in the oil sense, is that these resources are very valuable and uh, in the market economy. And, um, and in, in developing them, it creates jobs. It creates jobs for people in these rural, remote parts of Canada where there are very few jobs, if any. And uh, so the, the, this is why it's so attractive. I mean, once these companies invest in an oil you know, mine or a, an oil and gas project or a mining project, these are typically very long-term, you know, 20, 30, 40 year life expectancy for the, for the project. So they generate um, large amounts of uh, revenues for the company, large amounts of taxes for both the federal and provincial government, governments like that, and of course they create job opportunities. And uh, so this is the attraction to uh, why governments have been uh, um, so um, uh, you know motivated to to develop these. And of course we've been uh, developing our resources, using our extra resources from the very origins of the country. I mean, beaver pelts way back when in the days of the Courier de Bois, um, and way back when, 300 years ago, um, which led to the Hudson's Bay Company, um, which traded for the, for the beaver pelts to send to Europe for clothing, uh, was an example of uh, the, uh, the, you know, using or developing or exploiting our natural resources. So we, this is not something we started doing yesterday morning. We've been doing it for a third of a millennium. 300 plus years, and it, it is especially beneficial to uh, people 
in remote and uh, rural uh, communities. Uh, you said this is very similar to what we're talking about with other uh, indigenous community projects. Are we going to see the same project, uh, the same protests? Are we going to see? Is this? Are we building a road to nowhere? We see that Tech <clears throat> Mines uh, uh, pulled out of their development. Uh, obviously, as you said, this is for uh, the extended future. Uh, but yes. what is the chance of uh, of us ever developing this? Well, I think what you're asking is the question that's on the minds of an awful lot of people. Um, because the let me just back up for one moment. Uh, I, I talk about this in my class all the time, and you know, one argument you hear from um, environmentalists and so forth is, "Look, we don't need it. We're, we're a services economy," which is true, by the way. We're eighty percent, roughly eighty percent GDP is in services, and I don't just mean McDonald's. I'm in the services sector in education. You're in the services sector in, in media and broadcasting. Hospital workers, healthcare is is part of services, uh, consulting, law firms, accounting, all that stuff. All the high rise towers across Canada. Uh, they're not growing potatoes in high-rise towers, and they're not making cars or trucks. That's the services sector. And it's overwhelmed. we're overwhelming these services. However, what uh, those critics have not factored in is that the uh, many of these services uh, companies are, in fact, selling services to whom? Natural resource companies, consulting firms, banking, pension funds, and so forth. So the the, the contribution of natural resources is somewhat understated. At, it's around 15%, depending which study you see. Some say it's 12% of GDP. Some say it's 15 Some say it's 18 But it's, it's still significant. And uh, Professor Stephen Gordon has shown it's contributed uh, disproportionately to our increased standard of living, uh, the whole resource sector, over the last 25 years. So it, it's not only that it benefits some people, such as indigenous peoples in remote rural communities, but it's also generated a large amount of taxes in the billions and billions and billions of dollars for federal and provincial governments. And in an era that we're going into where uh, the economy is going to be slower, growing more slowly, and that's widely accepted, the aging is going to slow down the economy one to two percentage points a year of GDP. Then you get the response, well, it's not all about money, except that GDP translates into tax flow. Because governments tax everything, including wages and corporations. And, and so if GDP growth rate goes down, the amount of money flowing into the government is going to go down. At a time when, as we all know, health care costs are going through the roof and we're putting people in hospitals on gurneys in the hallways. We're so desperately short. And, and it's only going to become worse and more acute. So we should be thinking all hands on deck grabbing every uh, sure we want to make sure it's it's you know sustainable and it's and it's not going to you know degrade the environment but we should be looking instead of being so negative about each of these resource projects we should be saying you know this is yet another contribution to our high standard of living and including contributions to very expensive things that we've become accustomed to such as um, public health care I've had academics say on this show that Canada is in the process of shutting down its natural resources industries, and that's just not necessarily oil, uh, forestry, minerals, what have you. And, and again, I point to the tech mine pulling out. So uh, is this Canada's future, or is this just something that, that was Canada's future in the past? Well, if it was in the past, it was our entire past for the last 300 years. Um, that's not a flash in the pan. Um, uh, you know, it literally, we've been benefiting from resources from the very, very beginning 
up to the very present. Does Canada Oil, do Canadians get that our number one export? Do Canadians get that do Canadians get that message though, Ian? I mean no, we're we're no, seeing I we're seeing a lot do. of protests. I, I mean we're seeing the but wet sweat and protests. The message doesn't mean it's not a reality. Right, right. Uh, and and this is the problem. The um, and why I'm and by the way, I don't have I don't consult anybody uh, anywhere on the world directly or indirectly, not governments, not corporations, not associations, and I don't have any investments in the oil and gas sector. I'm, I'm just worried that, because I have looked at the health care and the aging of the population, and we are heading into a first-rate crisis in the next 10 to 15 years. Health care is going through the roof because there's more and more and more boomers in percentage terms. We're going to go from 12% of the population over 65. I'm one of them, by the way. And so that is my self-interest. And we're going to go to 25%. And boomers, the people over 65, consume vastly more dollars per person per year of health care than anyone else. Yeah, but if Canadians don't want this, will we not see the same thing, same thing that we're going to see or we're currently seeing with the Coastal Gas Link Pipeline and Tech Resources? Well, that's my fear. That's my fear is, yeah. is that... Um, a, a minority, because the polls all show that the majority do support resource development, and but a minority are very vocal and they're very determined, and they're very in stopping these projects. And it's not just oil. Uh, oil, I, I've said this for a no. Long they, time. Apparently, minerals, forestry. I mean, exactly. if you talk to Ellis Ross uh, with uh, MLA for Skeena, he'll say. And, and prior to that, it was the fur industry, as you said, that was Precisely. shut down. Precisely. And and the problem is, once we shut it down, we're not going to see the impact until several years. People are going to say, oh, that's just, you know, um, fear-mongering. We won't see the decline in our standard of living because these things don't, it's not like a light switch walking into your living room or your kitchen. You turn on the light and it instantly it's on. When you're dealing with a very large economy, we're $2 trillion, you know, we're the 10th or 11th largest economy on the planet Earth. These things don't show up right away. There's a long lag, and and it'll be gradual. And, you know, the boiling frog thing, you know, you put the frog in, mm-hmm. in lukewarm water, and then you gradually turn up the heat, gradually turn up the heat, and eventually you boil the frog, and the frog doesn't know it's being boiled alive. Um, and, and in this instance, we will see a diminution, a reduction in our standard of living. Scott, I want to just get two quick examples out there because I've used them. I'm not going to use extreme examples like Cuba or North Korea or Soviet Union. I'm going to use two examples that are well-known or reasonably well-known, Argentina and Romania. Most people would say that they're not, you know, far off totalitarian, crazy countries. Both of those countries were wealthier on a per-person basis in 1918 than Canada. And then in the success in the next 80 years, both countries went down the wrong road. They adopted policies that were very hostile to foreign investment. They developed very protectionist policies. And they became much more uh, closed. And their standard of living, now they're both middle-income countries today. They're not high-income countries. Now you can say it's not the end of the world, but I, you know, it means that it's going to be, we're going to have a lower standard of living. And I've never yet met anyone who says, you know, I really do want to have a lower standard of living. I want to have a lower quality of health care. I want to have lower quality of schools for my children. I've never met such a person yet. And yet, you know, and and this is the long, long-term consequence. It's not going to be tomorrow morning. It's not going to be in 24 months. But if we cut off and shut down these huge areas of investment, we're going to pay a price. We're going to pay a price with a lower standard of living over the next 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years. 
Um, let's talk about what has happened over the weekend with the wet sweat and hereditary chiefs and government apparently coming to a deal, although we don't really know much about this in regard to land rights and title and such. Uh, and the minister has has been very clear that this does not involve the pipeline, that that is a separate issue and that the uh, hereditary chiefs still do not want this. Where is this going forward? Has this it's, is this all smoke and mirrors? It was like we've solved the problem, which was originally started by pipelines and the protests and stuff, uh, but then we really don't have a solution. What is happening here? There's, there's two issues, and you know, I, you know, you've talked to, we've talked many times, and I like to go big picture and not get down into the weeds. And on, on this, there's two separate issues, and 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 I'm not saying that they're easy, by the way. And the one is the question of property rights. And yeah. property rights is the fancy term that investors use and academics use to describe, you know, do I have the right to, you know, renovate my house if I own it? Uh, and we know the answer is, well, sometimes yes, sometimes no. You have to go get permits. The government can actually regulate what you can do to your property asset called your house. There's restrictions on how you can use a car that you own and, and so forth. So that's the property rights question. But there's a separate question, and they often get all mixed up with the property rights. And that is this phrase, nation to nation. And there are a number of people, probably a lot of people in the First Nations community, as they like to call themselves, that say, look, we're not part of Canada. We're a separate country. We're a sovereign nation. And we want to have nation to nation discussions and negotiations with the government of Canada. And why there's been so much delay and foot dragging is that the two get mixed up the property rights over what territory do you have a claim over and is your claim merely merely a property rights claim just like ian lee owning his house or are you claiming national sovereignty in the same sense that denmark is a sovereign country and as you can appreciate no government has ever agreed that indigenous peoples are sovereign nations inside canada Uh, And neither has anyone else, by the way. If they were sovereign nations, they would be recognized by the United Nations, and they would have a seat at the UN. I'm not being flippant at all. That's what sovereignty means. You're part of the international community of nations. And, And so, you know, that's why I understand what they're saying when they said, well, this wasn't about pipelines. They were talking about the uh, legal status of the hereditary chiefs. That's a governance issue. And then, but the larger issue is, do, do, do their claims allow them to assert the claims of the, the, this particular group, to allow them to assert, in essence, sovereignty. That is to say, we determine everything that goes on in our territory, including pipelines that cross our territory, because you, Canada, are not sovereign in our country, because we're a separate country. Now, this is what I, I suspect that the reason they haven't released the terms of the deal, governments brag about things and shout it to the sky when they're really happy and they've got great news to tell us. When they are trying to hide information or suppress information or not reveal information, it's usually because they understand it's going to be very controversial and, uh, and there's going to be blowback and criticism. So I, that's why I'm so curious to see what this deal was. I suspect it's going to deal with the sovereignty uh, claim and it may uh, cause a lot of unhappiness in Canada. I, I, because they said it wasn't about the, the pipeline, which is a property rights issue. So what does this mean for the pipeline or pipelines moving forward and, the, and blockades? Well, if, if you accept the argument, as I'm making, and every government in Canada, provincial and federal, has made, that Indigenous peoples, yes, they have a special status under the Constitution, but they are under the Constitution of Canada. They're not sovereign nations. If you accept that, 
uh, argument, um, then then you just negotiate over the property rights issue, and the government has the right, because it's in the Constitution, by the way, for uh, properties that uh, cross provincial boundaries, by the way, railroads, pipelines that cross provincial boundaries, come under federal jurisdiction. And so if they accept, if they don't accept the sovereignty question, then you only have to worry about arguing over the pipeline. The fact that they didn't They've expressly stated this agreement doesn't deal with the pipeline. Tells me they were dealing with the much bigger and much more difficult question of the alleged or claimed sovereignty of this indigenous group, which, of course, is the same claim by many or all indigenous groups. So if you're negotiating this issue, you have to be really careful because you're setting a precedent for the, I believe there's 550 separate uh, bands in Canada. And so it gets very, very complicated and very, very tricky. I don't know what they negotiated, but I suspect the fact that they haven't released it suggests to me that it's going to be very controversial. Ian Lee, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's get off of coronavirus and... Uh, teacher strikes and bad license plates and all that sort of stuff. And let's head to where the real fun is, and that's in the United States, where it's Super Tuesday. I know you're all asking, what do I get for Super Tuesday? A larger fries? Um, an extra refill? No, it's just politics. And to tell us more is Reggie Giacchini, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News, uh, and he is with us now. Reggie, thank you for the time. Must be a busy day for you down there. It's always a busy day, Dan. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Good enough. Uh, tell everybody what Super Tuesday is, why this is so important in the Democratic Party uh, process. Well, it's important because in order to win the Democratic nomination to kind of go up against uh, Donald Trump later this year, Democrats need to gather delegates to vote for them at the convention. And the only way to vote del- uh, to get delegates is to win state primaries. And today, Super Tuesday, there are 14 states that are holding these primaries, and there are roughly 1,300 delegates up for grabs. You only need 1,900 in order to win uh, that uh, that nomination. So there's a lot at stake here. Democrats who have been doing well in this race, poised to pick up a lot of those votes. Democrats who have been struggling to now, this could be the end of the line. So this could be the halfway point. We should know more by tonight who a front runner is. Is that accurate? Well, I mean, it is sort of accurate, and we could see who is able to pick up some more momentum. There's a couple of wrenches that are being thrown into this, though. Number one, Michael Bloomberg. He could siphon off votes from Joe Biden. He could uh, siphon off potential votes from someone like Bernie Sanders and make it more difficult to get the number of delegates that would give you sort of an insurmountable lead. You also have to remember that there are advanced ballots that were ta- uh, that were cast in a number of states today. So something like uh, uh, four million advanced ballots were cast when people like Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg were still in the race. So there's mm. an opportunity that people could have voted for them. They're no longer in the race. The delegates still go to them no matter what. So uh, with those that we've seen recently just in the last 24, 48 hours drop out of this race, a lot of them putting their support behind Biden, who is the front runner at this point? Well, Bernie Sanders is still the front runner, and he very well may pick up uh, a good number of those delegates today. But Joe Biden is standing on some more solid ground. He had a rough start. He was uh, struggling in the first four contests. He had the first three contests. He had a big win in South Carolina. Because of that, he's picked up some big support. Now he has the support from two failed candidates. This is giving him a solid ground now, particularly because the support that Joe, uh, that Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar had 
was from the older population, and they typically tend to go for more moderate-leaning candidates. So this is a potential boost for Joe Biden. We just have to see whether or not it's too little too late. You brought up a valid point, though, with Bloomberg in the race. Will he skim uh, success from Biden? Is it more likely that uh, Bloomberg supporters are going to go to Biden rather than Sanders? I would suggest yes. No? I I mean, that would help Sanders? It's possible. Look, Bloomberg's entrance into this race was late, and he has spent nearly a billion dollars to get name recognition out there and to try and rattle and shake things up. And he's done that. Whether or not he's able to actually walk away a winner in any of these states, it's still to be seen. He was polling kind of in that top three, four, five, depending on which national poll you're looking at. So there is some support for Michael Bloomberg. Is it enough to actually do anything? We'll see. He was speaking earlier today simply saying he has no intention of bowing out and he's here to win it. So no matter uh, how good he does today, you can imagine that he's going to continue to pump money into this campaign, regardless of where it gets him. Uh, How is Joe Biden reacting to his recent success? And uh, I I feel almost bad asking this, but is he okay? We constantly see clips of him fumbling things. Uh, What about his performance? Well, look, Joe Biden has struggled on the debate stage up until the most recent debate where he actually had his best performance because he was limited in the amount that he was able to speak. You know, he's coming off of another gaffe where he accidentally said Super Thursday instead of Super Tuesday. I think people read more into this than than actually is the case. But nonetheless, it's enough to kind of jar and and make uh, some Democrats nervous that he may simply not be up to the task or that he is simply just part of an older generation that needs to step aside and let a younger generation run. That's not going to be the case right now. He is the front runner for the moderate center part of the Democratic Party, and they are coalescing around him right now. So no matter what his uh, you know, what people think about how he performs on the debate stage, he has the support from a growing number of of, of American residents. He has the support from the Washington establishment, and that could be all he needs to go toe to toe with the president. So what will we know by tonight? Well, we will know, at least get a better idea as to who the presumed and still front runners are. Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden are likely not going to go anywhere after today's race, and they'll stay in the lanes that they're running in. We'll see if Michael Bloomberg was able to pick up any support in any of the states that he's been spending all of this money in. We'll also see whether or not somebody like Elizabeth Warren still has the ability to move forward, despite the fact that she has failed to win anything yet. She's struggling in support. She's struggling financially. This could be the end of the line. But also remember, we still have candidates that it's in this race like Tulsi Gabbard who doesn't appear on stage she doesn't poll anything higher than often zero or one percent and still isn't exiting the race and what that does is siphon the few votes that are there for her from other contenders uh, down the middle so there's still some unknown factors in this race I know what else I was going to ask you Reggie uh coming out of Washington I'm not sure if this is accurate or not we're hearing rumblings that Trump may replace Pence on the ticket as vice president going into the next election. Have you heard anything about that? So, I mean, these are rumors that have spun around in Washington. There was rumors, especially when the president had put Mike Pence in charge of his Corona task force to say, uh, you know, if something happens to go wrong, Mike Pence can take the fall and there's an opportunity for someone else to jump onto the ticket with President Trump. These are all unsubstantiated rumors. They kind of have been spun around over the last couple of weeks or so. You know, the president says that he stands by his vice president. He's he, he he's putting him in charge of this task force because he believes he's the best person for that. But this is an unpredictable president and there's an opportunity for President Trump to do whatever he wants between now uh, and the time that he needs to actually put somebody on that ticket with him. So do you think this is just the opposition trying to rustle some uh, feathers here? Ruffle some feathers? 
I mean, it, it's possible. I mean, there, this is this is going to be an election year where there's a lot at stake, and you know, anything that you can do to make yourself better, anything you can do to rattle the opposition, anything you can do to rattle your own opponent or even inside your own party uh, is going to come out. Look, the Democrats right now are trying to contend with the fact that you have two polarizing figures trying to lead the same party, let alone a polarizing figure who is now trying, who is going to continue to lead the Republican Party through the year and possibly switch up his own ticket. There's a lot of unknowns and a lot of wrenches that can be thrown around at any point. Uh, Nikki Haley is the name being thrown out there. Any response from her to any of this? Uh, Nikki Haley has always said that she's happy where she is in the private sector. She stepped down from public life, uh, you know, last year and said that that's where she intends to go. The president is a fan of Nikki Haley, though. They they uh, they don't often exchange barbs with each other. This is no longer 2016. Uh, people tend to kind of follow the president and and don't say uh, you know near as many negative things as they did from the same party. You know, but then again, these are all rumors, and you know, with any kind of rumor, things change and things snowball. You got to just wait and see. Reggie Giacchini has been with us, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 5:30 and 6 for more on all of this. Reggie, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. Talking about Super Tuesday down in the United States and um, what is happening there in the uh, Democratic Party's process to elect a new leader who they will challenge Donald Trump in the presidential campaign for. Uh, to talk more about all of this and Canadians, specifically, uh, sorry, Americans that are living in Canada. Expats, how do they get involved in their election? How many do? Is it something that they are watching? Let's bring in Julia Buchanan, uh, Canadian Executive Vice Chair, Democrats Abroad, and is with us now. Julia, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, hello. Hello. Are you there, Julia? Yes. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. Can you hear me? I can hear you loud and clear. Uh, Democrats Abroad, explain to people what this is. Democrats Abroad is uh, an official arm of the Democratic Party. We're treated uh, the same as a state party. Um, and we send delegates to the uh, Democratic National Convention that uh, eventually elect uh, the final nom- Democratic nominee. So you are directly related to the Democratic Party in the U.S.? Yes, we're an official arm of the Democratic Party. And roughly how many expats living in Canada are involved with this? Uh, worldwide, it's uh, 150K. Um, Canada is the largest country committee, Canada and Mexico. But we are all around the world, so there's lots of us. There's about um, 6 million people worldwide that can vote in the elections. How engaged are Americans living in Canada with this current election? Does it, does, it, uh, does it change from election to election, or is it pretty consistent from election to election? Oh, no, it definitely changes. Uh, since Donald Trump's been in office, um, I mean, we had midterm elections in 2018, and uh, voter par- participation was up 300%. So we, and this is my third time... Um, we hold primaries here in, in Canada and worldwide, and mm. we're, we're holding them in-person places tonight. And you can we also you can also vote online until March 10th if you meet the qualifications, which I'll go over in a second. So this but, uh, so this election very much at the forefront for this organization and Americans at this point. Oh, it's huge! Yes, like I said, this is my third primaries, and I've never been this busy. We've never seen so many new members. Wow! So, talk a little it's bit about the criteria crazy. and who gets to join, who gets to be a part of this. 
anybody who's an American citizen can join Democrats abroad. Uh, they just need to, and that's, um, you have to be residing outside of the United States, be of voting age by November 3rd, that's 18, um, that's election day, and to vote in our primaries, um, you have to be a member of Democrats abroad. You're also, uh, you can vote in your own state's primaries as well, but you can only vote for one or the other. Do Democrats outside the country, they're living outside the country, does their, do their opinions differ much from the Democrats within the United States? Do, is it different once you go abroad and start watching from afar? Oh, yes, of course. I mean, we enjoy um, health care, um, universal health care here in Canada and in most places around the world. So, yeah, I mean, we do tend to be uh, a little bit more left left, just because we've experienced what, uh, you know, right. the gun control laws work and things like that. <laughs> I can imagine. I never thought of that. Uh, now, um, in regard to uh, the state of the current Democratic Party, uh, lo- I mean, mind you, you see this a lot of time when, when any party is choosing a leader. You're, you're hearing from all sides of the party. But your thoughts on where the Democratic Party is now, uh, specifically with the lean to the left and the lead of Bernie Sanders? Well, um, and, you know, I can, uh, I can speak for Democrats living abroad, and I've lived abroad for a long time. It's, it's a lot different if you live in the states and, and how the peop, you know, the messaging that they get. I mean, I don't, I don't see Bloomberg commercials every yeah. five minutes. So I really can't say as far as the party goes as a whole, but I know the party as a whole, you know, will vote whoever the nominee is to get <laughs> Donald Trump out. Yeah. So, uh, well, I guess that's my next question. How concerned are Democrats with blazing a new trail and what this party can do moving forward as opposed to a candidate strong enough that will challenge Donald Trump and, and from your perspective, obviously beat him? Well, I don't know. You know, the people voted Trump in because they wanted big change. Yeah. Um, the same thing could happen for Democrats, you know. Uh, what what is Super Tuesday? What does Super Tuesday mean to Democrats that are not living there? Are you are you are are, are people involved uh, in watching this continuously? Is it something that they just are aware of? How- oh yeah, all yeah, all the new members I'm talking about are are joining so they can vote in the primaries. It's it's like hundreds a day here in Canada. So. So what do you think will happen after tonight? Will it be a lot more clear uh, on who the front runner will be after Super Tuesday, do you think? Yeah, well, a third of all the delegates will get chosen um, tonight or yeah, through Super Tuesday. I, but, you know, it takes time to get the official results. But um, I suppose somebody else might, some other people might drop out and end up being, too, you know, too Two people. It could be. It could. St- they could stay in. I don't know. They could all stay in. How are you? I know view- a lot of people dropped out yesterday. How are you viewing four. this? How are you viewing this, Julia? Is this like a uh, Super Bowl party for for you guys? Um. Yeah. Yeah. We go we, meeting in pubs all around the world to watch returns. Yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> all right. If people want to find out more about Democrats Abroad, where do they go? Website? Anything? DemocratsAbroad.org slash join. If you want to vote in the primaries today, you can join today and vote today. There you go. Julia Buchanan's been with us, uh, Canada Executive Vice Chair, Democrats Abroad. Julia, thanks so much for the time. Have fun today. 
All right, thank you. I All will. right, you take care. Uh, there you go. So uh, when you think about it, uh, Americans living in Canada still very much engaged in their politics in the United States, registering with parties, voting in primaries and such. It's, uh, it's very much an active movement. Fascinating. It would be fascinating to sit in on a discussion with Americans, both Democrat and Republican, North and South, East and West, and find out what their impression is after living in Canada for, say, five or so years, 10 years, whatever, and how they explain that to their American friends that have never left. be an interesting discussion. I'd love to be a fly on the wall of that one. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, the Kidney Foundation is doing their Six Degree Challenge, which kicked off on Sunday. What does that involve? Let's bring in uh, Saverina Scoveri, official Six Degree Challenger in Hamilton with the Kidney, uh, Kidney Foundation and is on the line now. Saverina, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, thanks for having me. So what is the Six Degree Challenge? The Six Degree Challenge is the Kidney Foundation's way of getting the word out about kidney disease and how we're all connected to kidney disease by six degrees. I was actually born with kidney disease, and I thought I was the only person dealing with it until I came across this movement. So uh, tell us about this movement. How does it work? How does it all, how does the hashtag uh, take off? So you post a picture of you uh, throwing up six. With your hands, you make the signs of six, and then you share your connection, and you take six people to continue the movement, and it just gets people to talk about kidney disease, which a lot of people don't even know about. Do you think the public realizes just how uh, significant this disease is, how much of an impact it does have on Canadian society? I don't think so. I know a lot of people that have kidney disease are usually in their 60s and 70s, and it's from diabetes complications, but there are also a lot of people affected by it that are younger, like me. I'm 22. So tell us about your situation um, and how it has affected your life, how it has altered your life. So I was born with it, and my kidneys are smaller than the average size. Currently, they're at 13% function and I'll need a transplant at some point, and both of my parents are a match. And it didn't really start affecting me till the last couple of years in terms of talking about the transplant and actually becoming a reality. But thankfully, I haven't experienced any symptoms, and I've been able to focus on my career with a great support system. So for the most part, this hasn't been an issue with you, for you and the, the day-to-day routine of your life at this point? No, it hasn't. Again, I have a great support system. My doctors have been amazing, and we found things that work for me and my lifestyle. And what, so you is it just inevitable that you will have to undergo a, a transplant at some time? It is, yeah. It all depends on how I'm feeling. So it could be a month from now. It could be 10 years from now. We're just hmm. kind of playing it by ear. And how are things now for you? Uh, right now, my kidney function actually increased by 2% just by making some small lifestyle changes, and I'm hoping it'll improve over time. Hmm. Um, what kind of lifestyle changes? What would that entail? Can you explain? 
I've been working with Adam Lloyd from ALP Training Institute in Stony Creek. He's a nutrition and lifestyle coach. So we just made changes to my diet and my exercise routine. A lot of things that you think are healthy for everyone might not be healthy for you. And I kind of had to learn that through trial and error. Wow. And I'm thankful that I had someone to help me out. And with your situation, it was diabetes related. Is that accurate? It wasn't, but a lot of times it is. It is. For me, I was just born with it. How many people are affected by uh, this illness or by a kidney disorder in some sort? I believe the statistic is one in every 10 Canadians. So, again, something that's, that's quite significant but seems to fall under the radar. Yeah, it does. You really don't hear too much about it. So the whole uh, objective behind the Six Degree Challenge is to, well, I'll ask you, is to what? It's to inspire others to share your stories and know that you're not alone. There are other people going through this, and there is success after transplants. There's actually uh, the famous Zamboni goalie that defeated the Leafs last weekend. He had to stop playing hockey because of his kidneys, and then he had a transplant and was able to live this huge story after. How does the story of David Ayer help the Kidney Foundation? Well, I think it inspires those that are struggling and also inspires people to share their stories. I know I was inspired because life after transplant is a little bit of a blur, but now I'm motivated and I feel a lot better about the process. So how do we get involved? What should we do here? Well, go on social media, snap a picture showing six, and uh, take six people to continue the movement. All right. Savarina Scovari has been with us, official Six Degree Challenger in Hamilton, uh, helping out the Kidney Foundation. Uh, most don't realize how prominent this illness is and how those very close to us could be suffering. Savarina, thank you so much for this. Good luck. Thank you. Take care. You too. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.